Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The arts team here at KQED is pretty amazing. They've drawn people from all over the cultural and regional map to deliver you inside the creative worlds of the Bay Area. And no one represents that promise better than Pendarvis Harshaw and his show Right Nowish. So today, as a special holiday edition of Forum, Penn and I are going to have a little listening session to his favorite episodes from the year, talk editorial philosophy, and get a history of the hyphy movement and hip-hop from the inside. I know you've all been waiting to hear E-40 on Forum, right? Your dream comes true now. Stay with us. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. So we're doing an extra special pre-recorded holiday edition of Forum. I've got Penn Harshaw with me. He's the host of KQED's Right Now-ish podcast. And we're going to listen to some of his favorite episodes this hour. Thanks so much for being here, Penn. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays. So tell our listeners a little bit about Right Now-ish. What's the sort of premise of the show? Right Now-ish is a podcast and radio show that happens weekly. It's all about art, but it's never just about art. We talk to movers and shakers from all around the Bay Area. This year we've had polo players, people who've been incarcerated and now have started marijuana businesses, uh, people who are historians on the hyphy movement, you name it. Um, The real premise is about, one, throwing a wrench in the system, two, documenting the culture, three, meeting your neighbor, and four, telling people about what's currently happening in these streets. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And maybe introduce yourself, too. I mean, who is Penn Harshaw? Why do you go to Berkeley J School and go into this field? Oh, yeah, me. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Pendarvis Harshaw, Oakland kid, uh, grew up loving the town and just telling the story of it. And so I came up through youth radio, went out to Howard University, got a little knowledge out there, doubled back to the Bay Area and ended up at UC Berkeley where I did documentary film. Um, So I have the whole multimedia thing going for me, but I really like the audio form because it gives me the ability to tell stories that uh, really reach a broader audience. You know, audio moves so far. And so I've been doing this podcast thing for over two years now, and uh, it's an opportunity to really highlight the community that raised me, that poured into me. So I'm like turning around and pouring back into it. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I also I knew you before, KQED, and I had just seen the way that both you move in Oakland and the way you're sort of received. People love you in the town. It's the, it's the awesomest thing, and now you get to bring all that to, to our listeners. It's, I'm so happy for you. Um, let's talk a little bit about the first episode that we're going to hear. It's from a four-part series on musicians in the Bay Area. Uh, why'd you want to do a series on musicians in the Bay? 
there are so many artists, so many musicians who don't get the platform that they deserve in the Bay Area. So I started off this year by highlighting four, just four, artists who I've been following for some time, all of them different in uh, their personalities and what they bring to the table in terms of their music. And uh, this one in particular that we're going to highlight is uh, Champ Green, who's a, um, how can I say, he's a linguist and a philosopher and a chef and a culture keeper, and he also does counseling. Uh, and he's just, he's just a buoyant personality. How'd you get to know Champ Green? I knew Champ through uh, Backyard Barbecues. <laughs> and then come to find out, uh, he's one of the greatest philosophers that I've come to like, know about. Yeah. What about the other musicians? Who might people uh, hear? In that series, there's also Jada Imani, who's a, a soulful, all-about-vibes kind of musician. Uh, there's Nappy Nina, who's a lyricist, uh, who's currently based in New York, but from Oakland, California. And then the fourth individual is uh, YMTK, Young Murph the Kid, who is a former basketball star who is now a producer, ghostwriter, and singer um, who's in L.A. right now. That sounds so good. I love Jada Imani. Let's get into the Champ Green episode. Here you go. This is a little cut of Right Now-ish from Penn Harshaw. It's obvious. See clear like a optometrist. Transforming your mind like optimist. Binoculars. So you can see clearly, man. Signing off from the heart. Sincerely, man. Just last year, your catalog, you added a number of different projects to it. You've worked with Mr. Fab. Had a nice video with him. You've done work with... Grand National, obviously. How does it feel to have all that under your belt in this past year? I'm just thankful God being able to put me in a position to be able to express my talents, you know, and, and be able to work with my friends and just be able to build community because community is currency, so. Community is currency. So you got away with words. I guess I should warn people, man. Obama athletic, but a Reagan rebel. Overnight celebrity. Damn, Daniel. Black symbol. White chocolate seed of logic. Your most recent project was Agape Elephant in the Room. Why was that the title? You know, it derived from the elephant in the room, right? So everybody, they don't see the elephant, right? You know, but it's plain as day. So I'm the elephant with the big love, you know what I'm saying, in the room. Depending on the way you view it, either I'm a problem or I'm the problem solver. And for our, our folks who are um, unclear on what agape means, what, what does agape mean by definition? Unconditional love and the love of God give you unconditional love. That's agape. I give you a bear hug and then we hibernate. It's just faith and fate. Who put that battery in your back? You know, my mom raised five boys, no girls, in the streets of East Oakland. And the only thing we had was love. And that love allowed me to, you know, give it. Because I had the line on that. I had the plug, and I never ran on it. I never ran off on the plug. Champ's plug is his mama's love. And he never ran off on the plug. Yes, yes. <laughs> Looking at what you're doing right now with Grand National and how that collective... It seems like there's a lot of love in that collective. You're working with almost 10 to a dozen different artists and producers. I appreciate the music that comes out of the collective. Spending hours, spending wells, yeah. spending dollars, getting bills. That's just how it feel. I've been able to be blessed to be a part of teams who kind of run Ocean 12 or 13 or 11 game, which in order to get the job done, we really have to be very, very good or excellent. And so it's like a real life Henry Ford machine. 
So the assembly line is heavy with a plethora of knowledge, a plethora of game, and a potluck of camaraderie to the point to where we get the job done and pull off the heist respectfully. Respectfully. <laughs> Gladiator school, they warn for the moon rocks in the tomb raider looking for oil in the boondocks. The entourage is camouflaged with no clothes. Where did you get that that ability of wordplay from? I I guess I was I was born with it. I can't even explain it. It's in my DNA, if I must say. I was in an accelerated English class, right? I had to memorize two poems. And I was so frantic that I wasn't going to be able to memorize it the next day for school. And so my mom said, this is in eighth grade. She said, well, say it like a rap. I learned to say it like a rap. And then in every since then, the light bulb came on. You know, plant the seed, but the harvest don't come the same time as you plant the seed. You said it was natural, it was innate within you. But also, I'm wondering how much did nurture play a role into it? You know, the Bay Area, it breeds a lot of linguists. You know, obviously, E-40 is of it. But yeah, how did, did the Bay influence that as well? Of course, of course, most definitely. Um, I think also, you know, when we speak of hip-hop, I'm damn near just as old as hip-hop. I think it's like 42. I think I'm 42, so I had front row seats to the game, right? And then I had three older siblings, and I was just able to be uh, saturated in it. I telegraphed the script cause they was movie acting Acting soft on band crawl cause they was West Mackin Versatile tracking, the versatile lacking How far goes the well when it was overdrafting White water rafting And also growing up in Oakland, every turf got their own little slang You know, it could be a bunch of your partners, you know And y'all say what y'all little slick word mean And then it could spread like wildfire Because one of your partners may stay in the West And the other partner may stay in the Deep Beach And the other partner may stay in Richmond And it happens to become a thing, so in the words of uh, Mac Maul, serving game is my occupation. But you individually, you individually have a lexicon that you go through, that you pull from. And I just wanted to break down just a couple of terms that I want to hear you define them. So when you say things like, who's selling peanuts? What does that mean? Man, who's selling peanuts around this though, man? Everybody's always focused on the big, you know. Hey, you know, I need to do it big like this, but... You know, a peanut's small, so, I mean, you got to start small to get big. But who really going to sell some peanuts? Who really going to be on the front line, you know what I'm saying, in this underground railroad, you know, speaking the Sojourner Truth? Essentially, it's like, who's selling peanuts? Who's doing the grunt work with historical context? Exactly. Inventor of peanut butter is George Washington Carver, right? You know, roasted peanuts is peanuts in different, you know, ways. So how are you going to, George Washington, carve your niche out? On your latest album, Agape and Elephant in the Room, uh, you released a single with Ian Kelly. On that single, you have a crazy wordplay back and forth that I wanted to quote, and I might get it wrong, so correct me if I do, but you go, longitude, latitude, horizontal, that's parallel. Longitude, latitude, horizontal, that's parallel. Telephone, next person, next tail. Communicate, plant seed, beanstalk. Sky high, sky's limit, moonwalk. HBCU, cook knowledge. In the cloud, Mary Mary, Bethune College. The way that one thing leads to the next from the outside perspective is almost like looking at a slinky go downstairs. Okay. From the inside, how does your brain work? Also, so I'm left-handed, right? <laughs> right, so I'm... I'm, I'm coming from the other side of the brain, right? But at the same time, my dominant hand is my left hand, but like I play basketball and I shoot with my right. So I'll be serving ambidextrous game at the same time in rare form. You're also the face of 
hella nuts. Uh, the plant-based eatery on 36th and MLK in Oakland. Yeah, that's 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 really pretty dope. So uh, shout out to Mieko and uh, her daughter. I didn't ever expect it. So when she came out with the idea, I thought it was really, really funny. You don't look like your traditional idea of a vegan. Exactly. Or of the health food industry at all. Exactly. So, so like, do you, like, was that in your mind when this was proposed to you? No, actually, that was all sis doing because she wanted to break the stereotypes. I think that's the problem with our society. There's a lot of gaps that we need bridges over. And to be able to be a part of somebody being able to transform their lifestyle for the better that works out for them is, like, really, really cool. Your work, your nine-to-five work is uh, very cerebral as well. You work in the mental health field. Uh, what Can you explain to us what, you, what your day job is like? I work in the mental health field under the Alameda Care Connect program. A lot of people have lost their family, so, you know, we try to do a little bit of grievance counseling. I guess I'm kind of like a life coach on the low without all the bells and whistles of the job title because, you know what I'm saying, I'm still low on the totem pole, but my soul is gold, so it's good. But, yes, that's what I do. Like, I realize in life you can't be stingy with the rhythm or stingy with your wisdom. When you called, you got to an answer. And it sounds like that's, it seems like it's a fit. seems like it's working for you. Um, all right, so in the rap game, right, a lot of it is about ego bravado, how much you toot your own horn, how loud you are. Does it work against you that you are so cool and humble? I mean, I guess because everybody vying to be the guy. Like, I'm the guy, but I don't think I need to tell you <laughs> I'm the guy. That's the whole point why the Godfrey elephant is in the room. You see what I'm saying? Cry, baby, cry, baby, crying, no tears. Look into the light, jet setting like leers. Cheers, when my glass have a toast. Crock pot living, marijuana pot roast. We're listening to stories from KQED's Right Nowish with host Pendarvis Harshaw. More after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal here with Pendarvis Harsha, host of Right Nowish. We're listening to episodes of this excellent podcast. So we're going to listen to another one. It's one of the heavier stories that you had over the last year about a young woman from Oakland who was incarcerated and then came out and started a cannabis business. Why'd you choose to do this story? I chose to focus on Evelyn LaChapelle because she represents one of the many people who are formerly incarcerated for marijuana-related offenses and is now returning to society 
and still has that hanging over her. She's had some opportunities for employment, but they've been um, cut short because of uh, her record. And so she speaks to not only um, this marijuana industry and kind of the ups and downs of it, but also some of the hurdles that people who have been incarcerated face as they attempt to reenter society successfully. All right, let's listen in. Another episode of Right Now-ish on Evelyn LaChapelle. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now-ish. Welcome to Right Now-ish. I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw. In 2006, there were 173,000 people in California's prisons, the most the state has ever seen. The state was ordered to reduce the prison population. Then last year, many more folks were released during the pandemic. Now the state has around 99,000 people behind bars. With that change comes a wave of folks looking to successfully re-enter the community. Through my work, I've seen formerly incarcerated folks experiencing self-doubt, discrimination based on their record, and issues with learning new technology. The one guiding light for each of these folks I've talked with was relying on other formerly incarcerated people and advocate organizations to assist them on their path to re-entry. So for today's episode, I'm speaking with one of those guiding lights, a Californian who was incarcerated for doing something that the state is widely known for, being involved in the sale of cannabis. Evelyn LaChapelle is the owner of a cannabis business that's launching this fall. It's called 87 Months. The name of the business comes from the amount of time she was sentenced. In a country where cannabis was just deemed essential during a global pandemic, like, folks are still in prison for that. This week, we hear from Evelyn, who was at the crux of the war on drugs, reentry, and justice in America. 2013, I was convicted of three charges. I was convicted of conspiracy with the intent to sell over 100 kilos of cannabis, money laundering, and then structuring. Structuring meaning that I just avoided making transactions above $10,000 to avoid uh, the IRS. The crime that I committed was depositing cannabis profits into my bank account for a period of nine months. But because I exercised my right to a trial amongst my peers, I uh, suffered the trial penalty, which then gave me 87 months as opposed to six. I've read that at one point you were facing even more time? Oh, absolutely. The jury convicts me, I'm taken to jail. They send an officer to interview you while you're in custody and they complete something called a pre-sentencing report. And that's where they come, they're like, how did you grow up? Did you have a college education? Do you have a career? Are you a criminal? Are you a repeat offender? What is your lifestyle like? Are you on drugs? I have a college degree, parents who love me, a career. So I'm thinking I am on the up and up here. I'm sitting there so proudly uh, in my prison uniform telling her about all of my accomplishments. That lady writes the report and she sends her report to the judge. And now it is the sentencing recommendation uh, that I receive 24 years in prison. And they use that 24 years in prison to blackmail me out of my appeals rights. So they say, if you waive all of your rights to an appeal, 
I, the prosecutor, will recommend to the judge that you get 11 years was his first offer. We went from 11 all the way down to seven. And when he got to seven years, I literally had no fight left. Ugh. The system, the system, the system. What kept you going during that period? You were without choice. I mean, you're, what are your options to not keep going? I did suicide watch the first night, I'll be honest. They strip you butt naked, they take your mattress, they take your blankets, they give you a vest to sleep in. And that is what my first night was like. And so I learned first day in jail that my emotions would not be accepted here. My grief would not be accepted here. And this would be the response for any tears that I shed here. Eventually, your sentence got reduced and you ended up spending five, not seven years incarcerated. But when you were incarcerated, you left behind your four-year-old daughter during some very crucial years. How did that impact you? I'm still learning the impact of that. In order to cope, though, with not being with my daughter, I had to, and very early on, realize that God had given me a daughter, but that I wasn't the only person equipped to raise and feed and and nurture her. My mom and my stepmom shared custody of my daughter. They did one week, one week, one week. And so I say stepmom, but I hate the term because I feel Cinderella that up for us, right? <laughs> Cinderella just, just fucked the whole stepmom persona up, but she was my light and my angel. And, and so just thank God that uh, I, come from a place where people were able to, to, to do that while I was gone. That speaks volumes of the importance of family structure and having you know, support and network. I really wanted to talk to you about your reentry process. What was it like when you started to look for work? I go to work doing what I had done built my career in hospitality, a sales and catering coordinator for a major hotel. And so I apply at the Omni in San Francisco and everything checks out and I get the job. Remember walking out of that job saying, it's done, right? You've gone to jail, it's over, you're working in the city. I'm excited about this stupid ass commute every morning. Like I'm probably the only one on the bar hella excited. People don't be excited on BART. <laughs> There's nowhere to stand. Like, it's early morning commute and I'm just excited to, I'm excited to be in a commute. I'm on the job for about a month and a half. A coworker Googles my name, takes it to Human Resources and they call me in the office, I think it was on a Thursday. When you Googled my name at that time, you got my college scholarship that I had was awarded and you got this article from ICE that said I had like transported tons of weed. And so Human Resources asked me to uh, clean out my desk and leave the building that moment. I don't fit the perception that people will have of the incarcerated. I have a college education from Loyola Marymount University. I have a resume from the Marriott Convention Center, not just no regular run-of-the-mill ass Marriott. And here I am getting thrown out 
on the streets in the middle of the day. In your words, that made you realize that reentry was a setup. And eventually you got involved with groups like The Last Prisoner Project, which focuses on releasing incarcerated folks who are still locked up for cannabis offenses. And now you're actually working in the legal cannabis industry. You're launching a brand of cannabis accessories and going to sell everything from infused wines to chocolates and grinders. It's named 87 Months. Can you tell me why you chose that name? 87 is the 87 months that I had to listen to that judge uh, sentence me to. And now I'm going to reclaim it and make it into my story of resilience. And it is my absolute intention to make sure that 87 represents women incarcerated. Not only just reclaiming the name, but literally reclaiming the product that you were tied up with as well, right? Like, how does that feel? Okay, so I've always loved weed, right? So <laughs> I'm from Oakland. I think it is safe to say that cannabis plays a major part in our lifestyle here. And I've always been a huge fan. I was always like, they called me like the blunt doctor growing up. I had all the gadgets, etc. <laughs> but coming home after going to jail for this plant, I was like, screw this plant. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to smell it. And then uh, my first job in the industry was at Vertosa. Love those guys. And my first team meeting was discussing sales in kilos. The righteous anger that sort of brewed in that meeting, like my paperwork says I went to jail for over 100 kilos of cannabis. And they're talking like sales goals in kilos. That's when I realized that I deserved a seat at the table, period. There's no way that I sit in a room with folks who never really sold cannabis, who never risked their freedom for it. There's no way I don't deserve a seat at the table. And um, as appreciative as I am of all of my employment opportunities, I think it's important that I create my own seat. Marijuana is supposed to be something that assists you with mental health. And so I'm wondering, given your experiences, both up and down, like now when you look at marijuana, does it help you sustain mental health? Without cannabis, my attitude and my anxiety uh, is usually at 100. And so I'm asking a friend one day, Stephanie Shepard, she was incarcerated with me. She uh, received 10 years for cannabis. But I'm calling Stephanie and I'm like, Stephanie, I don't know. They say that you can't be addicted to cannabis, but can't seem to stop. And she says, no, 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 I'm not addicted to cannabis. I'm addicted to way that it makes me feel. I'm addicted to not spazzing out on people. I'm addicted to being able to take a deep breath. I'm addicted to slowing my brain down enough so that I'm not overwhelmed. Um, I'm addicted to being a nicer parent. And none of the things on that list were bad. And so that is, that is my argument for cannabis. Especially in our black and brown community, these are not things that we are pinpointing like, I spazzed out on somebody. You just consume, you just assume because I'm black and I'm angry. No, I spazzed out because I'm fucking overwhelmed. I've got five jobs, a kid and a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. And this cannabis allows me to say, okay, there's 20 things on the list. What is number one? Otherwise, I have 20 things on the list and I'm trying to at least accomplish 20 at a time. 
Is there anything else people should know about you or the reentry process? We are living amongst many, many people who were previously incarcerated, many people who have not come to accept that and are walking and carrying lots of shame and lots of guilt because of it. And, and I would just ask if people soften their hearts and their language. Um, and that, that goes across the board. You just don't know who you're sitting with, right? And I've sat at tables where they're like, oh, you just got out of jail, you must be, he ain't you, you like, and I, and you either sit there and you, you take it and you own it, or you say, hey, I was just in prison too, you know? Um, and so I just, I just ask that everyone soften their hearts. This is the country with the most people in prison. You, if you don't think you're around folks who've spent time, then uh... then you are not thinking at all. That's an important story there, Penn. And I also know that reentry is a big focus of your work, both at KQED and also outside of it, right? Yeah, for a while now, I've been working with uh, a number of different institutions in the state of California and individuals who've been in those institutions and charting their stories as they reenter society. I actually have a project that's going to be out in April of this year where we're looking at eight individuals who spent mass amounts of time incarcerated in California and how they have navigated the waters as they try to reenter society successfully. Just like the, the other side of mass incarceration, right, is like getting back into society. Who's going to help them? And it ends up being them helping themselves. So another series you did focused on making films here in the Bay Area, which is not maybe not quite the hotbed that Los Angeles is, but has some of its own things going on. We're going to listen to a piece of your episode with the filmmaker Cheryl Dunier. Could you set it up a little bit for us? Yeah, so Cheryl Dunier, first of all, I was really nervous before we did this interview because if you look at Cheryl Dunier's track record, she's done some work. She's a heavy hitter in Hollywood, and she's chosen to make Oakland her home base. And so talking to her about her love of film, her love of Oakland, and her love of representation of black people in film, especially in Oakland, um, was really important. And I would just I had butterflies before talking to her. That's one of the biggest things I remember about this conversation. And in this cut, which we're about to hear, it's going to start off uh, with tape. And it's because she was directing an episode of the TV show Lovecraft Country, where a black character named Ruby is given the ability to turn into a white woman. All right. Let's listen to some more tape from Right Nowish. I had just ran crazily to Lovecraft with all my visions because I'm queer. I know cinema. Uh, I know blackness. And in my first film, Janine, it talks about my relationships with a, a white young girl in, in high school and having a crush on her and desire, you know. She was blonde. Blue eyes. She seemed so perfect, and I just seemed so imperfect. I mean, she was the epitome of whiteness. Questioning whiteness and blackness and skin and, and stuff like that. So I brought all that. It scared out of me to wake up white when I was stumbling down the street, crazed and disheveled and screaming at everybody around me. They weren't scared of me. They were scared for me. I just dipped into myself again, using my own stuff and putting that on top of some wonderful writing by Sonia and Jay Kidd. I don't know what is more difficult, being colored or being a woman. Most days I'm happy to be both, but the world keeps interrupting and I am 
sick of being interrupted. I love it. It's like this thread of you being a scholar, a scholar of yourself, a scholar of the art, um, a scholar of, of Philly. I've heard you talk about, you know, your, where you've come from and your production company, Jingletown Films, obviously influenced by Oakland. I'm wondering, how has the history of Oakland, of Jingletown specifically, influenced you in your filmmaking? I was living in Jingletown, <laughs> which is a, a section of Oakland um, in the Fruitvale area. Jingletown was named Jingletown because there were workers there who, back in the day, the early 20th century, when they got paid, they had money in their pocket and it would jingle. Um, and that's sort of where that came from. So I thought it was a wonderful way to label and name the company. And then lo and behold, people are on the street just running into Boots Riley, right? Running into Natalie Bazile, who wrote Queen Sugar the Book, and just running to a variety of other filmmakers and artists. Oakland is historically one of the most powerful Black places and woman space and queer spaces in, in the world. And, and to be at the epicenter of all that, and, and that was a choice for me to move to Oakland. Some people were lucky, magically able to, to you know, be from there, which I, I wasn't. I, I moved there uh, full time in about 2010, because it was a choice. I was living in LA, I was like, I'm done with LA. I, I, this is where I want to be. I feel complete, I feel agency. We want to make things in Oakland, not just about gay San Francisco or it's about blackness and liveliness and realness, not about the, you know, blackness of, of Oakland being one of the, you know, scariest places to live in America because uh, of death on the street or, 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 or it is telling these stories the way we want to tell them, putting a spotlight on it to make some change happen. So possibility, black to the future, all of that is what Jingletown is about. That was Cheryl Dunier on the Right Nowish podcast. We're listening to stories from KQED's Right Nowish with host Penn Harshaw. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm here with Penn Darvis Harsha, host of KQED's Right Nowish. We're doing a little listening session. And Penn, what makes a great Right Nowish episode? A great Right Nowish episode is definitely that cross section of like something that's going on right now and something that speaks to a larger story, something uh, either historically or maybe nationally or internationally. 
But looking at a microcosm of a much larger story is really what Right Now is just all about. Yeah. I also just love, as someone who's getting old, I feel like you're catching people in the arts who are getting hot and moving up. So I kind of like, I'm like, all right, this is my look ahead to what I'll, what I'll be hearing about uh, in two years, you know. Um, another thing I love, just as long as we're handing out compliments, I feel like the special emphasis that you place on telling stories kind of from the inside these communities. Like I think we hear it in Evelyn LaChapelle, we heard it with Champ Green, and we're going to hear it um, in the, the next episode that we're going to hear as well. And I just, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm a firm believer that art starts at home, especially like as a parent, I'm sure you know that the kid who draws on the wall ends up being the muralist, you know? <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we're all doing, you know, year-end look backs and looking back at the past year of the podcast, what do you think are the themes that emerge for you about what's going on with the communities that you cover? It was a year of transition, um, a lot of attempted transition back out into the world, quote unquote, um, trying to move away from the silos that we were in in, in 2020. Um, and there was a lot of artists trying to reestablish themselves, have their first show, put their first album back out, uh, people trying to get back on their feet. And so um, this was an opportunity to chart that and uh, also take some time to recognize that not everybody was in a rush to get out the house so we could tell some longer stories, some historical pieces, some pieces that uh, give listeners an opportunity to sit down and listen. Um, and so, yeah, working that balance, I think that's what we tried to do. Yeah. I also know that you're looking for listeners to tweet at you, OG Pen, with their New Year's resolutions and things they're hoping for in 2022. What are you hoping for for right now as we head into the next year? In 2022, I'm hoping for, I know, I know what we're working on right now is a series about love, about big love. Hmm. I'm excited. It's a four-part series about big love, and we're not talking Disney. We're not talking romantic love. Now we're talking self-love, love of drugs, love of uh, rough love, like tough love, like getting through some stuff. And then we're talking about Afrocentric artistic community love. Oh, man, that's going to be great. When's that going to drop? February. We're taking that month over. Big love all month. So we are going to listen to one more episode from your show. We've saved this one up. This is basically, right, like the insider's guide to the development of hyphy, yeah? Yeah, yeah. This is something that you introduced me to this concept of like hitting a story that's in my wheelhouse. And I mean, I grew up in the hyphy movement. This is a historical look. I grew up around academics. I also grew up around cats from the neighborhood. And so this is an opportunity to uh, kind of throw that all into one pot and get a story out of it. And um, the producer, our producer, Marisol Medina Cadena, and our editor, Jessica Plachik, they work magic on this piece. It's, it's really one of my favorite pieces of this year. Yeah. And you've got the perfect person. You've got trackademics to lead you Tra through it. Trackademics, Jason. Yeah, he uh, he was he was one of the first people I met as I stepped into the media production world through Youth Radio. And so uh, checking back in with him some 10, 15 years later, it felt like a conversation with the old buddy, but also an opportunity to sit at the foot of a scholar. Oh, that's great. All right, let's listen in. Another episode of Right Nowish, this one on Hyphy. My name is Pendarvis Harshaw, and I grew up in the midst of the Hyphy movement. The scrapers getting sideways, those airbrushed T-shirts, them big stunner shades, all of that. That was my teenage experience. Oh yeah, you me? Town business, right? If you listen closely, you can hear me behind the camera. <laughs> filming the classic footage of Oakland A's mascot Stomper going dumb. That was at the record release party for E40's My Ghetto Report Card. Arguably the height of the hyphy movement. Yeah, so you know I get to feeling old when I realize that kids born during that era are now in college. And with this new generation of young adults, what's old is new again. I'm hearing musicians sample elements of songs that I grew up gigging to. Rappers talking about bringing hyphy back. 
and even references to what came before hyphy, mob music, and before that, funk music. That said, I think it's time for a Bay Area musical history lesson. And who better to chop it up with than the Cool Collar Scholar himself, the honor roll producer who has worked with Jay Stalin, Kamaya, Mr. Fab, and so many more. His name is Trackademics, and he knows a thing or two about hip hop history in this region. The energy in the Bay Area was so thick. We talk about the hip hop legacy of Northern California, the etymology of the term hyphy, as well as why it's important to know your history if you're looking to make some music that slaps. We'll be back quicker than the time that it takes you to go to the store to get some Henny, some Swishers, and some Listerine strips. Ugh. What's the first hyphy song you ever heard? I'd have to say that E-40's album, it had gasoline with Turf Talk. That's when I first started hearing like, oh, this is an actual crazy sound, like the hyphy sound. And Turf Talk's voice next to E-40's voice. Just kind of created this crazy tone where it's just like unruly it was it was in your face the beats by rick rock hold up shout out rick rock the northern california producer behind the classic old school songs contemporary hits and a ton of songs from major hip-hop artists like tupac jay-z and even this song from busta rhymes and mariah carey as long as you are you know i got it Rick Rock was one of the producers who laid the cornerstone to the hyphy sound. He produced songs like Hyphy and Go Dumb by the Federation, as well as E-40's Yeah, yeah, He was making crazy beats. He was making like more up-tempo songs with wacky, wacky sounds, crazy percussion. This is something different. It's hyphy. I mean, we didn't have the terminology yet. But it slapped. Hyphy. The word was said on record by East Oakland's Keek the Sneak in the mid-90s. That's yeah. my word. Hyphy. And gained popularity in the early 2000s. I don't put that on. That's my word. But in the early days, when Keek started using it, hyphy didn't mean what it means now. He's the one who created the hyphy terminology. Because in Oakland, hyphy was not, didn't mean fun. Hyphy meant they hyphy over there like I'm not I'm trying to go over there. Yeah, I'm, they might rob you. They might. You never know what's going on. Right. No, that's a hyphy dog. I'm staying away from it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but as language does, the term evolved to mean hyperactive in a good way. Full of exuberant energy, you know, like the life of the party. It's pure energy. It's, it's, not, a, it's not even a, a clap sound or a ghost riding whips and all that. It's, it's pure energy. If you think about what was going on around the rest of the country, like the only thing really comparable energy wise in the party was Atlanta. At that time they were into the crunk. It was crunk was popping. We have our own version of, of like high speed, energetic crunk, you know, energy. It didn't, didn't sound the same necessarily, but just it was a comparable energy. It all sounded like clear liquor in the you know like <laughs> vodka cranberries and vodka red bulls in the club <laughs> oh i can taste it oh it's so bad hyphy juice a lot of sugar high fructose and alcohol <laughs> <laughs> the hyphy sound in the mid-2000s didn't come out of nowhere it was a combination of the energy of the people and the evolution of music styles happening locally 
To start us off, back in the day, there was funk music. The heavy bass and synthesizers shifted into a darker tone, becoming mob music. Mob shit, bitch. That sound got juiced up and grew into what we know as hyphen. Same bass, more tempo, not as dark, and a lot more fun. The generations of Bay Area rap are so thick. So, like in the 80s, if like you had prehistoric mob music, I call it prehistoric, you know, Cro Magnon mob music, where a lot of that was influenced from like, you know, East Coast rap like Houdini. But specifically here, it's just the bass lines and the ominous sounds. The Moog synths and, and the different yeah the different synthesizers that they were using back then, and so that's the first iteration like that mob that 80s, you know too short, too short sound. <laughs> but also very like influenced by the funk, funk music, Ohio funk. Everyone knows short sampled Parliament Funkadelic and James Brown, but it's the deep cuts that show just how foundational the funk was. Tracks like The Conscious Daughter's Something to Ride to, Funky Expedition. That song is built off a sample of the SOS band's No One's Going to Love It. As it went through the to the late 90s, mob music started reinterpolating a lot of things. Bay Area living is only known to flex. You'll be had a lot of musicians like Ant Banks, Kyrie, producing very like lavish, I guess, productions. The mob era came with different flavors from all across Northern California. Similarly, the hyphy movement had different flavors from different towns too. There was them hood stars from East Palo Alto, Jay Stylin and Livewire Records out of West Oakland, and the Federation out of Fairfield, to name a few. And many artists had careers that span both mob music and the hyphy movement, like Too Short, E-40, and this one guy whose birth name is Andre Hicks. But you might know him as the Frilly Ghost, Ronald Dragan, Fizzell Washington, Andre Mackesy, the Cold Crest Creeper, or simply... They call me Mac Dre and I'm keeping a name. Sport Nike shoes, I got a mic to use to talk bad about... The thing that he brought was the energy of hyphy the caricature the character of hyphy he kind of set the ground rules or the groundwork of like the fun aspect of it and and then as the music started to catch up with rick rock and e40 bringing that actual sonic sound of hyphy that connected with the characters that mac dre gave fab in the 2000s mac dre forever man i don't know what they heard the baton from mac dre was kind of passed to like mr fab in that regard and everybody else. So I could touch myself. The game's so sharp, I might cut myself. Is there something about the region that breeds this sound? All of the, the different influences have created this thing because we weren't the first ones to start rapping or the first ones to do funk music. When you're not the first, you're kind of informed and you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna put this twist on it. It's funny that you said it, of all people, that like when you're not the first, you create a twist you remix it essentially which i mean is what hip-hop is about like you take it you do a sample you scratch it your own way you know you flip it and you put your own flavor in it but also that's literally like how you made your mark in the game bring me to 
one of your more notable productions, the remix of Tell Me When to Go. How did that come about? That was early 2006. And I remember the energy was crazy in the Bay Area. It was like a pressure cooker and things were like speeding up. The day that the Tell Me When to Go vinyl dropped, I specifically went in with the intent, like I'm gonna remix this because there's a lot of friends I know, like who are not from my area, you know, not from the Bay Area, who don't understand the Bay Area culture. They heard the song Tell Me When To Go and they're like, it's just drums, there's no music, or there's like no samples, or there's no like, it's not, that's not creative. And I'm like, y'all are tripping. It's a culture that you don't understand. And so I was like, well, I'm gonna remix this and, and with the intent that y'all gonna get this Bay Area music. Y'all are going to <laughs> respect us. <laughs> In my studio, I, I used to produce on on these car speakers, on these old like tens, these 10, 10 inch subwoofers. And I placed the acapella on top of the beat. My face melted. You know, like there's only a few times where you like automatically know you have a hit. At the time, I was working at youth radio in the training department. I went and brought my remix and gave it out to the students at youth radio. At the time, things didn't go viral. They just went on your MySpace player. And so I, I had put the song on my MySpace. Everyone started adding it to their MySpaces. And then, you know, next I heard people were playing it in their high school gym, like rallies and students would bring me video back showing me, you know, like, look, it's going crazy. And like that next, like maybe three months was just insane. Wildfire. <laughs> Hey, it's that song where like the whole club will go stupid. And this is like club, I'm saying club. Like, let me get it right. Candy shop function, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what. That's where I was. I was 18, 19. 18 um, dummy. Going 18 dummy, right? I knew that as long as I kept the, the knock in it, the pound, you know, the bottom, it would it would stand up sonically in, in the function. Is there a major philosophy to remixing things? I'm born and raised in the Bay Area. I'm from Alameda. It's right next to Oakland. I call it the island off the coast of the town. Me, I'm half black and Filipino. That's a re that's a uniquely Bay Area remix. I mean, there's we're everywhere, but like the Bay has a very big uh, community of of folks like us. So I feel like for me, that's kind of like the backdrop. Like I've always been in between a lot of things. You know, growing up in Alameda, wasn't a lot of black folks and even Filipinos where I lived. And so it was like, I got to get in where I fit in. And I felt like remixing was the same way. I liked so many types of music growing up and I kind of wanted to put them all together. Anita Baker, like the old school stuff I like and Sade. When it came to remixing, it was also like trying to create something different than the original, but just as good. Not trying to necessarily do something better or like that beat was whack. It's more of like, okay, well, this is where the original sits. Let me try to do something adjacent to that that people might not have been thinking about. Gotcha, okay. That's the philosophy that went behind the work. And well, Who are some of the early artists that you work with? I used to give out CDs a lot, and the first person that took me seriously was Mr. Fab. Fab called me the next day on his way to Summer Jam, and he was like, hey, bro, this CD slap. These beats, 
you know, he's like, they're different, man. He's like, but he kept saying, he's like, we got to connect. We got to connect. He was working on what will become Son of a Pimp. And I ended up producing six tracks on there. I did Chris V's first mixtape. I did six tracks on there, on the masterpiece. Classic mixtape. Like, that's a hood classic. Having someone as talented as Chris V and Fab and all them, like, rap on your beats, it wakes it up all the way where you're like, oh, I, I think I can actually do this, you know? What's going on right now in terms of Bay Area sound? It's all like a post-mob and hyphy sound kind of mixed together. So you have a lot of like the, the, the slap and kind of the general rhythmic disposition that's similar. We're back to like the ominous chords and like the pianos. It's undeniable that the sonic backdrop of it all is a direct descendant of the older Bay Area music. Even someone like Rex Life Raj, where it's like, it's almost like soulful mob or soulful hyphy. It, it amazes me how much it stays ingrained in our music. And, and I believe that it's gonna stay because it actually has influenced the whole, the whole landscape of music. Man, Pen, Trackademics. That guy really comes across beautifully in that episode. And I also want to ask you, how were you personally influenced by hyphy music and the whole movement growing up in Oakland? That era was the time that I picked up the, the camera and started writing and started like really producing media because I realized somebody needed to tell the story in a proper way. So, yeah, I was heavily influenced, and I felt like uh, the story was much more nuanced than what I was seeing on MTV. Um, and I had some opportunity to tell a couple of stories. A lot of my tapes got washed away or lost as I moved from spot to spot, but it definitely introduced me to the power of storytelling, specifically about my own community. This has been a special holiday edition of Forum with Bright Nowish. Thank you so much, Penn Harshaw. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays again. Happy holidays to all the listeners out there. Be sure to tune in to Right Nowish, and then if you're looking to contact me directly, hit me on Twitter, OG Penn, two ends. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.